Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Hunter. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app, and you can set the Grove Church as your home church, and we're located in Marysville, Washington. Uh, and you can also find our plan on our website, grove.church. So those are a couple of different ways to find it. It's the More Jesus 365-Day Plan. And if you are jumping in today for the first time, we are on day 14. So January is always nice because the day just lines up to whatever day the podcast comes out. After that, it gets a little bit more... I don't know, it gets a little bit more confusing, I suppose you could say. And as finally, if you have any questions, feel free to email those in to the email address info at grove.church. Uh, we'd love to answer them. And also you can direct message our Facebook page or Instagram page and those get ta- sent along to us. Just make sure you say it's a question for the podcast because otherwise we might just answer your question. And that's no fun. You know, you want to be on the podcast, obviously. Uh, okay, so Hunter, is this is your first time joining us this year. This so year, yeah. You were in, were you in, was it one episode or two episodes last year? I was year? just in one. I think when Aaron was gone for a couple weeks, just me and Nathan. There you go. Filled in. I guess spoilers, Nathan will be here next week as well. So we we liked you guys. We brought you back. Not as a team, though, because you weren't a team in the first place. We weren't. That would be fun, though. That's true. Uh, Hunter is the worship pastor here at The Grove. I don't know if there's anything else you want the people to, to know about you. I don't think so. Big Bible nerd? A little bit. Me and me and Evan like to be nerds together sometimes. And when I say big Bible nerd, I mean both in terms of height and in terms of the size I'm of your, your nerdiness. Six foot five and have a big head. There you go. Hey, nothing wrong with a big head. <laughs> well, a physical big head, a, a metaphorical big head. You don't want one of those. That's just, you know, yeah, no one likes that. Not a, All right. No egos here. <laughs> well, enough of that. Uh, I am, I just, Listeners, you can probably tell I still have a little bit of a cough, but I'm hoping that uh, I'm going to get away with minimal coughing attacks today. And you know what? Maybe, maybe I talk too fast anyway. So maybe a little bit of a lower energy Evan is going to be for the best. Uh, so with that being said, let's go ahead and after hours Evan. After hours <laughs> Evan. Nick at night. The old. <laughs> That's like what did I see. This is a totally random tangent, but it was some meme where it was like. Uh, me as a eight-year-old when I fell asleep watching Nickelodeon, and then it's just like the George Lopez sitcom <laughs> yeah. jingle coming on, and like you wake the kid wakes up, and I'm like, that speaks so much to my childhood because I'd fall asleep watching Nickelodeon, and then I'd wake up, and it would be like weird Nick at Night sitcom. Not weird, I mean they're fine sitcoms, yeah. but not the thing you're wanting to watch when you're eight. So there you go. All right. Well, with that being said, let's jump into this week's Bible reading. Uh, so jumping into this week, we see Jacob really earn his name. It, 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 as a reminder, his name means deceiver or trickster is kind of the way that you can translate those. Uh, at this point, Isaac has grown old and apparently blind, and he thinks that his life is coming to an end, coming to an end soon. And so he brings Esau in. He asks him to go out, hunt some game, and to make him his favorite meal, which appears to be a stew of some kind. Uh, and so Esau, and after that, he's going to bless him. And so Esau is like, absolutely, sounds great. And so he runs out. He's going to go hunt for his dad and make him his meal. Rebecca hears about this, and she decides to help Jacob uh, get the blessing instead of Esau. So she makes a meal out of goat instead of, I don't know what the game was that Isaac wanted, but you know, probably, probably deer of some kind, or maybe, I don't know, maybe he was into weird, like exotic stuff. Maybe he's ostrich or giraffe. I don't know. Probably weren't giraffes up there. Ostrich though. It's a little North for that, giraffes. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? Anyway, so Rebecca uh, slaughters a goat out there, or she has Jacob slaughter a goat. And then she makes Isaac's favorite meal out of it. And then she also takes some of the fur from the goat and she wraps it around Jacob's arms and his, uh, and his neck, because he's one of those guys that can't grow hair on his arms and his neck. Can you imagine? And so I, I have a lot of, 
have back hair too. It's, I do too. It's, it's okay. too much. It's too much. Anyway, uh, and so all of that's happening because Jacob's, you know, he's a wor- he's worried that he's not going to be able to trick Esau or Isaac into thinking that he's Esau. So Jacob goes in and he convinces Isaac that he is in fact Esau. Isaac's hesitant at first, but eventually he gives in. He he feels the arms and the in the neck, and then the the clincher is that he. I don't know what this says about Esau, but he he goes in, and then Isaac's like, ah, the smell. You smell like my son. So the the dead goat. <laughs> Is is what apparently is I don't know. Yeah, there's a there's a bit in this passage um, that we we somewhat miss in the original Hebrew that sort of gets smoothed over in the language that gets used to describe Esau as being like very gruff, like very um, unsocialized, and even like when he's talking about the stew that he has. That that line translates better to more like me like red stuff. Oh, like really? it's yeah, it's it's like not a complete sentence. But we we kind of smooth that over for the sake of the reading, but it's it's really primitive the way he speaks and he acts. And... Oh man, I love that for him. Way to go. <laughs> That's awesome. I did not did not know that. And so yeah, Jacob leans in. He smells like Esau. And so Isaac gives Jacob this blessing. And this is Genesis 27 verses 26 to 29. It says, then his father said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field, which the Lord has blessed. So I just, I just kept that in there for funsies. Uh, The actual blessing though. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. So that's a really nice blessing. That's very nice. Uh, at this point, Jacob dips out, and Esau returns from the field. We don't know how close these two events are, but it seems to be right after, like almost like within minutes after uh, Jacob leaves. Esau comes in. Uh, he's like, hey, I, Dad, I, I, got, I got your stew for you. And then Isaac's like... Who are you? And he's like, and then you know, all this stuff happens. A bunch of hijinks ensues. Uh, when the truth is discovered, Isaac, 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 and Esau are both distraught. Um, there's actually really. I always feel like this line hits me really hard, where Esau is begging for a blessing, because um, he, he says basically like, "Won't you bless me too, Father?" Because the first time that Esau loses out on his his birthright to Jacob. It's because Esau is just kind of being a dummy. You know what I mean? Or, or at the very least, he's not able to stand up to the temptation of being hungry. This time is Esau did nothing wrong. <laughs> and he's he's yeah. just been deceived. Uh, Isaac's just been deceived. And so I, I always feel really bad for Esau in that moment where he's just kind of crying out to his father for a blessing as well. And it feels like, not feels like, the thing that was rightfully his has been, has been taken away from him. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Isaac is unable to give him anything close to the blessing that he gives to Jacob, but eventually he does receive this blessing. And this is verses 39 through 40. It says, Then his father Isaac answered and, sa- and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of the heaven from above. And by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But it shall come about that when you become restless, you will break his, no- his yoke from your neck. So essentially he can't undo the blessing that he gave to Jacob, but he does give Esau this blessing of you're not going to serve Jacob forever is kind of the way that it goes. So, you know, that's nice at least. Uh, Esau leaves his father's tent and he tells him that he tells himself that he will wait until Isaac is dead and then he's going to kill Jacob, which, you know, I get it. You shouldn't commit murder, but 
I, I, I totally understand Esau just being really peeved right now. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca hears about this, and so she sends Jacob to go live with her brother Laban until Esau calms down. Uh, the idea in the text seems to be that this wasn't going to be a super long time. Like it was going to be maybe lay low for a few days, like a month or two. Uh, but we'll see. That's not exactly how it goes. Jacob's going to be over there for, for quite some time. Uh, going back to Esau in the chapters, we see that he marries an Ishmaelite woman named uh Malatha, uh, Mal- Malalath, Malalath, Mahalath. I don't know. I should have. Mahalath. I always do this, Hunter. Uh, I always put names in without actually thinking about how to pronounce them until it comes live. You were the one I'm who like, told me you just got to own it. You just got to do it's it. It's true. Because no one's right, probably. <laughs> that's, that's, that's even the people who are like the most confident. <laughs> yeah. They're probably They're probably wrong. still wrong. <laughs> You'd go back to this time in history and they'd be like, what are you, what are you saying what to are me you right saying? now? Uh, so anyways, this is, this does not appear to be Esau's first wife, but it seems to be his first non-Canaanite wife. And that's a big deal for Isaac uh-huh. and for Abraham. Remember, Abraham did not want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman. So that's why his servant went to go find Rebecca. Isaac uh-huh. does not want his sons to marry Canaanite women. Uh, Esau apparently did not listen to that at first, but eventually he does uh, with this Ishmaelite woman. And then Jacob, as we'll see, he does not marry Canaanite women. He marries, uh, I don't know what, I forgot what the name name of that place is. So they're, you know, they're Laban's daughters. Spoilers alert is coming up uh-huh. here in a little bit. Uh, spoiling uh, Hunter's passage yeah, that's you. coming up. Uh, and so back to Jacob on his way to Laban's home, he stops for the evening and he has an incredible dream. He sees a, a ladder with angels ascending and descending up from heaven back down to earth. And then he hears the voice of Yahweh promising to protect him and to bring him back to this land. And so it's kind of a, it's a, he he has the blessing of his father and he also, not the blessing of God, I suppose in this moment, although I guess you could say it is. I, it's, I mean, it's at, weird. Least, at least in light of Paul's words in Romans, it seems like clearly the blessing of God. Right. I guess I'm saying when I, when I think blessing, I also think of the the English baggage that comes with that as far as like blessing what he had just done, which isn't what's oh, happening yeah. here. Which um, is, yeah, yes. it's not what's happening, but you're right. Like he's, like Paul talks about in Romans, God favored Jacob over Esau and he did that for, his, says he, for he his own. He hated Esau. Yeah. Which I, I that it. word has, yeah, that word has some baggage New Testament, uh, what, what do we want to say? Nuances to it. Right. And it, it is what it is. But yeah, Jacob is clearly the favored one here in this moment. God is promising to protect him and to bring him back. And so when Jacob built, wakes up, he builds a simple pillar of remembrance because he wants to remember that this is where this happened. And that's going to come up later. Eventually, Jacob is going to make his way back to this spot. But that's not going to be for be another- a few years. Yeah, a few years, a few days in the reading plan. But A few days in the reading plan. But anyways, weeks, Hunter- Weeks of years. <laughs> a couple weeks of years. There you go. Um Speaking of that idea of of not blessing, um, the Lord's not blessing necessarily what Jacob's doing, but he's blessed Jacob in making that distinction. Um, One thing when I'm reading all of this kind of super messy stuff in the Old Testament, um, I I put it in light of, of the saying that Joseph says at the very end of Genesis. We're not there yet. I'm spoiling. Spoilers. I like it though. Sorry. Um, <laughs> if we go to Genesis 50, the last chapter, Joseph speaking to his sons says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I, I like to frame kind of everything that we're reading, everything that we're thinking about um, as there's sexual assault, there's people marrying tons of other people, there's all of this stuff that's sneaky and slanderous and bad. Um, And the people meant it for evil, but God, when we think about God blessing Jacob, 
He's taking those evil things and he's using it to bring about eventually the salvation of the whole world through this people. The ultimate good. Yeah, the ultimate good. Um, And that's ultimately what this blessing is about. But um, like I said, we're going to read some really strange stuff. Yeah, I think there's one of them. And we we were talking about this a little bit a few days ago, but I think Uh one of the big mistakes that we make especially when we're reading through the Old Testament, is we kind of just, we, we, we meet the characters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we think modern day Christians. Like that's yeah. the lens I view them through. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, when it's just like, no, they're like, the, the story of the whole of scripture is God eventually, and, and particularly the story of Israel within scripture, is the story of God taking these kind of nomadic, barbaric herdsmen yeah. and slowly, emphasis on slowly, yeah, very slowly molding them into his people. Uh-huh. Um, and so like I, we were talking about how when Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, that's not a weird thing uh, for, mm-hmm. for him. Cause back then that was like, and, and uh, to be clear, this is an abhorrent practice, Yeah, yeah. but it was- And a that's ver- made clear in scripture. Yeah, that's true We'll too. read that in, in, I think Deuteronomy, there's some very specific. Mm-hmm. But child sacrifice was a very, was a very normal thing. Yeah. It was just kind of an understood, like if you, cause, and you get how you get here. Well, in, in terms of demonic influence, it makes complete uh-huh. sense that Satan is like, yeah, kill your children. Uh, even within the heads of humans, it makes sense of if you're going to sacrifice something in order to change fate, what's the ultimate thing that you could sacrifice? It would be your, it would be your children. Yeah. Um, and so when Abraham is told to go sacrifice Isaac, it's kind of just like, oh yeah, that's that's a thing that God's asked people to do once in a while. Like that's not the wrestling point with it. The tension with it is that, well, God, you promised me that Isaac was going to be like this great nation is uh-huh. kind of the big thing. And so I think in that moment, what you're seeing is like Abraham is a man of his time and he's slowly being shown the law of God and the yeah. goodness of God and the morality of God. And then eventually, yeah, you get into Israel and what's like the ultimate, like the, the number one thing that sticks in God's craw is that the Israelites worship the golden calf and said, behold, these are the God, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. But the number two thing is child sacrifice. Yeah. And pretty much any time that happens, God immediately shuts it down. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the king is going to die. His line is going to end. Um, that happens all the time in Israel. In Judah, there's I believe there's only one king who engages in it, and he's and he's it's Manasseh, and he's he the freaking worst. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yep. <laughs> and even in that moment, that's where he was so evil that the goodness of Josiah could not save Israel because From God was, exile, yep. Yeah. And he, he was so, he was so done with it. And so I don't know, it's just, it's just kind of interesting as we read through the old Testament, remember that God is slowly molding these people into his people, but they're not, they're not there yet. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, we're not there yet. Also true. But, these people from our perspective look super not there yet. <laughs> I just bring that up because the, this Genesis 29 starts with Jacob getting to um, finding Laban and marrying his cousin, but then having children with a whole bunch of different women. And they're called marriages and it seems somewhat normative in the text. But like we said, this isn't endorsed. We're just recording what's happening. There was, uh, this another, I think I told this story on the podcast last week, but there was a, a kid in youth years ago who was struggling with this. And he's just like, yeah. why did God allow like polygamy in the Old Testament? And I was like, God does allow. And I think there's there's parts of it that are beautiful in the if you if you think about the context of the time. Like I think the passage about the idea that um, as a brother, it's your responsibility to take care of 
Oh, your yeah. brother's family if he dies. Uh-huh. I think that's, that's something. not polygamy, though. That's... Well, but the well the idea was that you would marry his wife, and that yeah, you, and that, but but I'm saying so like today, um, like if my brother died, I would want to make sure that his wife was taken care of, and that his he has two kids, uh-huh. uh, that they're taken care of. But obviously, that doesn't involve me marrying his wife anymore. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it yeah, looks sure. different, um, and so you contextualize it a different way. I think parts of that are beautiful, and parts of it is just like it's just sinful nature of yeah. the lust of man, and we are given the ideal male female right. marriage relationship right in the first chapter of Genesis. And and the thing I and, you know? the, and the thing I told this kid was even though it's allowed there's it's never good. Like yeah. in the, all throughout the Old Testament there's never and I'm saying this very broad language maybe there's one I can't think of but it, I I believe there's never a moment where uh, a man has multiple wives and it just all works out great yeah, and there's no, no conflict I and it's awesome. Either. Yeah, it's it's just, it always leads to trouble. Yeah. And so even if it's allowed it's not a great thing. Uh-huh. Um, so this this story, Genesis 29, um, this is the story of how Jacob gets all of his sons except for one. Um, that happens a little later. Oh. But um, he has 11 of his 12 sons, one of who is Joseph, who we'll learn about here in just a second, um, whose journey down to Egypt we will follow. Jacob makes his way uh, to the people of the East, which is the land that his mother, Rebecca, and his grandfather, Abraham, are from. Uh, Jacob is looking for his uncle Laban, but ends up meeting his cousin first. He very much likes his cousin. <laughs> so stop saying cousin. Just makes it, just makes it way <laughs> I worse. I said cousin. That would, that's on purpose. There you go. Um, he very much likes his cousin, and uh, he's already been told, like like Evan said, that uh, he has to go marry one of Laban's uh, daughters. Jacob connects with his uncle Laban uh, and tells them that he'll trade seven years of work for his daughter, Rachel, the one he likes very much. Uh, Jacob's cousin, Rachel, the younger one was very pretty and the older one had bad eyesight. Leah had bad eyesight. Before glasses, I I would imagine that was a very big deal. You and I would basically be useless uh, you can't see us. We both wear glasses. It's true. I'd be useless help. at a distance, at least. At least yeah. up close, I can still I see. I mean, I can read stuff without my glasses if it's like right, like a foot away from my face. Like I'm right. pretty blind. But um, you didn't want me leading a camel caravan because no, no, the no. sign that says get off here for Hebron, I would I would miss yeah. it. And then all of a sudden we'd all be in trouble. So, so my, my wife has glasses um, and I still married her. <laughs> but back then that would have been a much bigger deal. You're a better man than Jacob. <laughs> a better man than Jacob. Well, he, he, we'll find out he, he does marry her, but not on purpose, um, which is a really weird sentence to say when you think about it. Um, where were we? Oh, yeah. Um, Leah, where it says Leah's eyes were weak. Uh, that There's one idea, obviously, kind of speculative that this is about her having bad eyesight. We just talked about that. Um, it could also mean that her eyes were dull compared to Rachel's. Um, so they weren't as bright or vibrant or attractive. I, I didn't realize that before reading a commentary. I, I, I found that. I married a woman with very beautiful eyes. Evan also likes women with very bright blue eyes. I like how you just like say women plural. <laughs> no, no just, not just, my wife. <laughs> uh, sorry, Ashley. <laughs> Ashley also has very bright blue eyes. It's That's true. a thing I think for all of time men have... Um, been very attracted to. Jacob completes the seven years of service, but then Laban tricks him into sleeping with Leah. Classic Laban. Yeah. On his wedding night. 
Jacob decided not to turn the lights on at any point. I don't, I don't think, well, I don't think it's, I don't know if it's inherently stated, but I feel like he had to have been drunk. <laughs> like there's no, you, yeah, can't, you can't pull this off like completely sober. And it, you think, well, at know, nighttime, man. I mean, if there's no, if there's nothing lit, we don't need to think about the situation too much. Yeah, but, that's true. Um, Either way, Jacob gets tricked into either. it, which you know what? Deserves it. I'm just going to come yeah, out and say does. it. There you go. He sort of does. Then he has to complete another seven years of service to Laban. Uh, it calls this a week in the text. That is an important phrase in scripture. There are a couple times we get this idea of a week of years that'll definitely come up in Daniel, um, where this week is symbolic of seven years. Um, so keep your eye out for that as you read through the text. Uh, he completes that seven years of serbi- service <laughs> service to Laban uh, to have Rachel as his wife. Uh, and then Jacob goes to have children with Leah, Rachel, and both of their servants over the next... There's a, a big chunk of text there that kind of follows in detail. Yeah. And we saw this with Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, yeah. right? Where it just... It was a common cultural practice back then where you would have children with the servants of your wife and those would count as your other children, children of your yeah. wife. Yeah. Other, other, yeah. Other, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So, cause we it's think of like the, a surrogate today, except there's intercourse involved. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, but cause we think of I, growing up in Sunday school and I get why they don't go into all of this when you're, yeah. when you're a kid, but you think of the 12 sons of Jacob and they're between two women. No, it's between four women actually. And uh-huh. then, but they're, they're counted as between, between two. two. Yeah. yeah. It's a whole thing. Again, it's not endorsed. <laughs> very, it very just, important. It's just recorded. Um, let's see, where were we at? Uh, yeah. He has children with Leah, Rachel, and both of their servants. Then we get to Genesis 30. Uh, Genesis 30 starts by recording the order of the births of these children. This is a dramatic thing where some people can give birth and some can't. And there's a whole bunch of back and forth. All of these children are born. All of this stuff happens. We're probably, we're at least 14 years plus the amount of time it takes for all these people to be born. So we're a good 21. Well, seven years. Because hmm? Jacob completed seven years t- to marry Leah. But then he marries Rachel and does another seven years. It's not at the end of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I always You're thought right. I always thought that when I was growing up is that he worked 14 years before he got to marry Rachel. But Laban, at least, he's, you know, he's a jerk, but he's not so much of a jerk that he makes Jacob wait another seven years. Are you sure about that? I'm When I read it, uh, yeah. Because it, it says he completes his week. I thought it was- With I, Leah. And I do, oh I, I I guess I read that as the the actual wedding, the wedding week. Right, it's not like a week of years. That's what like that's the, the way I interpret it. Okay, and then after that, after the wedding week, he's married to Rachel as well, and then he completes seven years under okay. with that. That's how I interpret it. That would make sense. I don't know what's right. We <laughs> don't have time to look it up. Uh, <laughs> we're just we're just freewheeling over we're just here, listeners. We don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> no. Um, uh, let's see where we are. So Jacob, after having all of these kids, wants to leave with his his wives and his children, but Laban pays him to stay with any of the lambs in his flock that are speckled. So any of them that aren't perfectly white, they've got some black or some gray or some brown in there. What do you call it? It's not fur. It's uh, uh, the, the wool. Wool. There you go. Maybe. Probably, yeah. Uh, but Jacob, being the trickster that he is, uses some sap from some different local trees, mixes that in with the feed of the the sheep, 
so that when they reproduce, they all have spots. Um, and because of that, he gets to keep a ton of lambs and it makes him very rich. Classic, classic. <laughs> Jake. I don't know, Laban and Jacob deserve each other. They're like, they, they, should <laughs> they be, really do. They should be the father and son combo because <laughs> they're just outdoing each other in deception and, and sneakiness and horror. It's just, what are you going to do? Uh, well, yeah, not everything keeps going all hunky-dory for Jacob. Uh, eventually, Jacob realizes, you know, this Laban fella isn't exactly treating me very well. And so he hears from God and he gets the message to return back home. So Jacob packs everything and he sneaks out. So this, he's not going to say goodbye and, and you know, do, do the right thing in this moment. Uh, he's just going to get out of Dodge. And so Rachel also steals some of Laban's idols. And that turns out to be kind of a problem. Uh, when Laban realizes that Jacob is split, he chases after him. And after catching up, he accuses Jacob of stealing these idols. Uh, and so when we say idols, think like small wooden statues, basically, is, is what's happening here. Uh, and Jacob tells him, that he didn't do this. And if Laban finds the idols, whoever has them, he's going to put them to death. And so, and you'll see this happen like in the Bible. And this is a weird lesson. This happens again, like two chapters later. Yes. Don't, don't promise to kill people. Yeah. <laughs> like that's just like, I don't, like listener, if you're. it'll be your daughter. It'll end up being your daughter or like half your the time, daughter-in-law. Your brother. Your, yeah. your own wife. <laughs> listener, if you're, if you're in the middle of making a promise and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'll promise to kill someone. Stop it. You know, get some help. Jesus <laughs> does say, don't make promises essentially very much a paraphrase of that's true yeah but you let your yes be yes and your no be no but yes anyway yeah this doesn't work out too well for uh jacob or joseph's brothers or for jephthah when we get there but that's a long ways yeah. away now okay so luckily uh when laban is searching rachel's tent she has the brilliant idea of sitting on them so she's like wait a second i can hide these uh and then her dad's like hey get up and she's like i can't get up because the way of woman is upon me um and i feel like you you get what that means listeners yeah. uh and so she's being sneaky so she she manages to cover up the idols Laban is none the wiser. And so he comes back out and he has to admit like, okay, I guess you didn't steal my idols. Uh, and then Jacob and Laban make up and then they make a covenant with each other. So, which that's, that's kind of, yes, yeah, as, as we've seen it's the last sweet. Yeah. yeah. As we've seen the last few chapters, that's kind of just what you do when you mess up. You're just like, Hey, let's make a covenant of peace together. Although unlike his father and grandfather, this covenant is not because of, Hey, you know, I'm sorry that I told you that my wife was my sister instead. Uh, this one's just a good old fashioned, you know, <laughs> Hey, you falsely accuse me, but we're cool now. And then in fairness to Laban, he didn't falsely accuse him. He just thinks he falsely accused him. And so is Jacob. Yeah. So there you be. Uh, we both got <laughs> tricked that time. Yeah. Rachel, <laughs> she tricked both of them. Way to go, Rachel. Uh, eventually Jacob reaches his homeland and he sends in the servants to tell Esau, uh, when they return, they tell Jacob that Esau is coming with a force of 400 men. So as you can imagine, the last memory that Jacob has is of Esau being fuming angry. Yeah. And now he's coming with, you know, this isn't like him and his family coming to greet Jacob. This is a, his host of, of mighty men, or yes. I don't know if they were mighty, but his host, his host of trained men, I suppose you can say. I, I don't even know if they were trained. I, I guess a bunch of barbarians. That's true. I guess I'm 400 men. I guess I'm implying the, or I'm, I'm inferring from the text that they're, that they're trained. Yeah. Like Abraham's had his, he had his special guard that he went to go rescue a lot with. Uh -huh. I'm kind of guessing that's, this is Esau's crew of the special guard. Maybe. Who, who knows? All right. Well, Jacob is understandably pretty afraid and he sets aside a large portion of his flocks as a gift to Esau and he sends those ahead. So, uh, you know, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar as the saying goes. And so Jacob then sits and he kind of waits at the camp. And then this happens next. 
Now he got up on the same night and took his two wives, his two female slaves, and his eleven children and crossed the shallow place of the Jabbok. He then he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. I love that line just because it doesn't give any sort of Yeah, there's no content, there's no lead up. It's just like like you, would, yeah, you would think with this like moment, like you'd see, like, and then the man came up and they started to talk and they began wrestling. It's like, nope, wrestling, wrestling. Yeah, just he's wrestling immediately. Yep. All right. Well, when the man saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while he was wrestling with him. Then he said, let me go for dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, you shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have contended with God and with man and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over the Peniel, and he was limping on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the tendon of the hip, which is on the socket of the hip, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the tendon of his hip. Uh, that's a little note that gives you a hint that this is written long after <laughs> the, yeah. the events took place, because obviously this isn't a thing that, be, or I guess it begins at this moment, but the phrase, therefore, to this day, is not something yeah. that implies, yeah, a couple years later, to this day, we still do that. So yeah. I, I love this scene just because it... it <clears throat> And maybe I, I read a lot into it. So to, to be clear, listeners, what I'm about to say is a very open-handed thing. But I, I feel like this is Jacob trying to earn something. Um, hmm. Because the last time that he got his blessing, what did he do? He tricked his father into it. He tricked an old blind man into believing that he was his brother. Um, and this time, you, you, I get the idea that Jacob is trying to best this man in combat hmm. And earn his blessing, and and, so, and again, maybe I'm just kind yeah. of maybe I'm reading a lot into it, um, because it, and it also gives a lot of weight to the idea when he says, "What is your name?" and Jacob has to answer, "It's Jacob. It's it's trickster. It's deceiver. Um, that is my name." And so, in this moment, the blessing he receives is the blessing of a new name. Yeah. Uh, and and obviously, you know, the the it's not the kingdom of Jacob. <laughs> eventually, it's the kingdom of Israel. That's the name that goes down into posterity. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's a really beautiful passage in that moment. I, I think that's a little bit of the, the subtext of what's going on here. And it also gives weight to the idea of, I think it's pretty safe that this is a Christophany. Yeah. I was going to ask if that's your... I think so. Yeah. I, I think so too. Uh, and I, to explain listeners, a Christophany is a, an appearance of God, the son in the old Testament before he's incarnated, incarnated as, yeah. as Jesus Christ. Um, so the one that is like very clear a Christophany is in the the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, in the fiery furnace. The the fourth man who looks like the son of God or the son of the gods. Yeah, it's the son of God. So that's kind yeah. of that's kind of how we describe it. Um, but there's a few more in the Old Testament where I think that th that is what's happening. Um, I think this is one. I think the the commander of the army of the Lord in Joshua. I think that's another Christophany. So there's a few. The few. There's a few. What like do you think that. about um, the very beginning of Genesis? Uh, I think it probably Genesis two or three, like right where those cross over, mm -hmm. talks about the Lord walking with them in the cool of the day, like being physical. Do you see that as a Christophany or? I, I haven't thought about that. I've, I've always in my head. Cause I've, the Lord, I mean, it's made right. clear in scripture. He doesn't like God, the father doesn't have a form, right. you know, in the sense that we can see him and understand him. I've, I've always interpreted that as Adam and Eve are walking 
in the garden and feel the tangible presence of the Lord. But I, I could very well be convinced that that's a Christophany and that they're actually mm-hmm. walking with the sun in that moment. I don't know. That's an, that's an interesting point. Um, I guess we better move on with this Yeah, yeah, one. sorry. We could oh, no, you're good. go forever. Me and Hunter always get sidetracked talking about stuff. We do, sorry. Uh, and so anyway, all, all of this- I feel this... like sometimes the sidetracks are the most interesting part though. So we're sorry, but also Ho- not sorry. Hopefully the listeners hopefully. feel the same way. Uh, and so Jacob wrestles with God in this moment. And I, and I love that God doesn't reveal his name in this moment. So that's that's the whole reason I say I think it, it's a Christophany mm-hmm. is- um, He's basically like, you don't, you know my name. It's kind of like the subtext yeah. I get from that as well. Uh, and then eventually all of it leaves or all uh, God leaves in that moment. Jacob has this blessing. He has his new name, which is kind of enshrined in a little bit that we'll talk about. Uh-huh. And now Jacob and Esau are finally going to meet after they all these years. finally meet. Um, and the first thing Jacob does is he uses wives and his children as shields. Classic. <laughs> He's like, go on ahead. Like, what's he going to do? this army isn't going to kill you guys, um, which that's real great. It's real great. At I mean, it's probably true. I mean, e- even if Esau was still burning mad, he's probably not going to kill a bunch of women and children. Yeah. I oh, mean, probably that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like, I feel like Esau's, Esau's a good guy. He's not going to probably not going to go for it. <laughs> All right. Jacob and Esau, they go back and forth um, about accepting Jacob's gift, like all of the lambs and all of the, the other stuff that he brought to appease his, very angry brother. Um, and finally they go on together, kind of separated a little bit, but they make their way to Shechem. Is that how you say it? I say Shechem. But Shechem. You know, which Let's I, say Shechem. Either way. Let's say Shechem. I like that better. Uh, we get to Genesis 34. Um, we have a very sad story, but this is another one of those. Um, it's bad stuff, not endorsed but recorded. Uh, we, uh, Jacob's daughter goes out to see the people of the land that they're in and unfortunately gets sexually assaulted by an, a man with the same name as the city that they're in. His name is Shechem. Bad name for it. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? He is now representing the whole of the city. Um, not great. S- symbolically in that that's not a good thing. We'll see in a, in a moment. Um, and he insists that Jacob's daughter becomes his wife and sends his dad to Jacob. It's like, I'm, hey, dad, go. <laughs> in fairness, that's kind of the way marriages were worked out back Yeah, no, it was. Yeah, yeah I, I, that, that was very normal. But <laughs> he sends his dad to Jacob. Uh, Jacob's pretty mad and waits for um, his sons to get back from attending to the field. Uh, and they get back. And they talk to the dad of Shechem and uh, they come up with a very sneaky plan. They've taken after their father. And they say, um, if you want to take us, meaning not just um, Jacob's daughter, but any of the women among them as wives, you need to be circumcised. Uh, and I love this revenge. Uh, yeah. Like, what I think they, they take it too far, but oh, I, for th- sure. But this first step I think is just brilliant. Revenge. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, if you guys want this, you gotta go circumcise yourself. Yeah. Go cut <laughs> off a piece of your genitals. Um, so the men are, are very excited about this proposition and they all circumcise themselves, which is just wild to me. Like <laughs> I can't imagine it. being so attracted to a woman that, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> moving forward. Sorry. Um, 
And while they're still healing, Jacob's sons use this as an opportunity to kill them and plunder the entire city. So, so yeah, while they're the, sores, still sores. Yeah, the says. inference is that like it's the next day or the day after yeah. and everyone's still kind of hunched over in pain. And that's when is it Simeon and Levi, I think those are the two sons that, that yeah. actually do it. And uh-huh. then they just, they're just, I don't know, it's sneaky. It's, it's, it's smart, I suppose. So taking after their dad, it's a little bit too far there, but yeah, I mean, everyone, yeah. Yeah, everyone in the, everyone in Genesis is just kind of a deceit, con- a conniving a little guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Jacob's, a, a he's a little frustrated because they've ruined his reputation in the city, which is understandable, killing a bunch of men and plundering a city would ruin your reputation right. as, as a family. Well, and this gets brought up it, later on when Jacob is, I guess I'm spoiling the end of Genesis, but uh, when Jacob is blessing his sons at the end of his life, he specifically references that Simeon and Levi get a lesser blessing because of, because <laughs> yeah. of this and because of what's happened. So it, it is a big deal, but you see that, um, yeah, you, you see, I, I also think you see in Levi here, uh, a hot temper, which was going to come into play for one of his descendants in a few generations who also gets into a lot of trouble because of his hot temper. But we'll, we'll, uh-huh. we'll cross that bridge when we get to Exodus. Uh, so after all of that awkwardness, God reinforces Jacob's blessing in the name changed uh, in the fact that his name has been changed to Israel. Uh, and then this happens at the same place where Jacob had that dream of that ladder all those years ago. And so this is where he names it Bethel. So it, he gives the place a, a proper name and he builds a little bit of a nicer monument to it as well. Cause this is um, two, two, these two things have happened here. So this is clearly a very important spot as far as the life of Jacob yeah. goes. Uh, and then we get, we get the story of Benjamin. So Benjamin is the last son of Jacob and he is the, also the last son born of Rachel. Uh, Rachel realizes during birth that she's going to die. And so, and this is an incredibly common thing back in this day. It's yeah. really unfortunate. Uh, and so she names him Ben Onai, uh, but Jacob goes with Benjamin anyway. So kind of rude if you ask me. So yeah. basically like his wife is on her death. Like, I won't honor my dying wife. Yeah. Like <laughs> she's like, this is his name. And Jacob's like, oh, that's cute, sweetie. And then after she dies, he's like, no, yeah, guys, it's Benjamin. Like forget it. Ben Onai is a stupid name. So what are you going to do? Uh, and so, but that happens. Rachel is buried and I will, we'll talk a little bit later about, I guess it'll be next week, but it is interesting that after all of the conflict between Rachel and Leah, uh, and we got a lot, we, there's a lot that we didn't even get into, but it's just a lot of awkwardness that's happening. They clearly are just at each other's throats because they're competing for the blessing of, or they're competing for the love of Jacob. And Jacob yeah. is not a, he's not a good enough man, uh, to give, to give his wives what they need. I don't think anyone is. I mean, that's, that could be true as well, but I think Jake, I don't think Jacob gives one hoot about trying to like, about caring for Leah's feelings, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think, I think there's, he doesn't try to assuage any of her worries at all. Uh, But anyway, and so, but after all of that, Jacob and Rachel are not buried together. It's Jacob and Leah. So that's kind of a, I guess, spoilers for what's coming up in next week's episode as well. But uh, Rachel is buried here. She stays here, whereas Jacob is, is brought somewhere else. So there you be. Uh, chapter 36 gives us a genealogy, Woo! which is... <laughs> Burr, 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 burr. Yeah, there you go. Uh, not on highlights here, to be honest. So this is... Uh, <coughs> This is Esau's genealogy. Uh, we find out that his descendants are the Edomites. So it becomes the nation of Edom, which if you're saying to yourself, hey, that sounds familiar. Yep. They're, uh, they're going to be. Yeah. I, I always think it's really sad that Israel and Esau, the people make up and seem to have a close relationship until their deaths. But 
Israel and Edom, the kingdoms, which should have been kind of these sister kingdoms that were working with each other throughout history. They, that, does not, that is not the way that it goes. Yeah. Um, and Edom and Israel remain enemies until both of them fall. Um, and even, I think it's Obadiah is the prophet that's all about how Edom's downfall is coming. And the big thing is that as Jerusalem burned, the Edomites were up in the hills cheering, cheering it on as it went. And that's kind of the last picture that we get of the Edomites. So not great. Um, the one highlight from this that I thought was interesting is Eliphaz is mentioned. Uh, this is Esau's firstborn. And so this might be the same character who's mentioned in Job. One of Job's friends is Eliphaz. And so uh, if you put a gun to my head and asked me, when is Job taking place? I would say this is a really weird thing to threaten violence over. But then after that, I would say probably like, <laughs> you know, I think that Job is a contemporary of Joseph. So I think it's happening around that time. And I think the okay. Eliphaz of Job is the same Eliphaz that is Esau's son. But that's very open-handed. Like I could be very wrong. But that's just kind of how I interpret it. But yeah, en- enough with enough with genealogies, Hunter. Let's go into the story of our last uh, our last hero, our last central character of yeah. Genesis, I suppose. What he tell me is. about Joseph? Uh Joseph is one of Jacob's sons. He is his second youngest son. Uh, but his Joseph, first favorite. But his first favorite for sure. Uh Joseph was what we like to call a snitch. Um, he told on his older brothers and would, the, the text sings, uh, sings, the text says he would bring reports to his dad, what his older brothers would do, which is not a great way to endear yourself. Yeah. Endear yourself. Uh, and Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons and makes him a robe of many colors. Uh, this phrase actually refers more to the length of the robe, which I found counterintuitive. I always visualized huh. it as like this big, colorful robe. Like a was, rainbow thing almost. Yeah. yeah. It, it, at least from the, the research I've done, the more, um, it, it seems like it's more talking about the length of the robe. It would come all the way down uh, to the ankles and to the wrists instead of being more up at the, uh, closer to the shoulder hmm. and was... What it symbolized is it was for someone who didn't work. It was someone who oversaw work because if you had gotcha. long, um, long sleeves and long, whatever the things call it, it's a tunic. So it has like, you know, it's not like pant legs, whatever the thing that really long over your feet is when it's long. If you're working out in the mud, you're working out in the field, it's going to get very dirty. But if you're someone who's overseeing those people, it's fine to be shorter or sorry, to be longer instead of short clothes, if that makes sense. Uh, It's basically, he's, he's propping up Joseph as an overseer of his brothers. Um, As as the youngest brother at this point too. Yeah. Which is, you can uh, see where that leads to conflict. Yes. Uh, And this is, this robe essentially represents the birthright. He's kind of offering this to, to Joseph. Um, and Joseph's brothers super hated him for this. Um, Joseph then has two prophetic dreams that we, we get to hear about, um, about his brothers and then his brother's father and mother all bowing to him. Uh, and no one is happy about this. (laughs) The brothers aren't happy about it. Uh, Jacob is not happy about it. Um, because I mean, who would be happy if someone just comes up to you and it's like, hey, I had a dream. You were bowing to me. Like, I that's not 
endearing. Like Hunter, the other night I, I woke up, but it was a dream of like just you just like worshiping. Isn't that funny, Hunter? Uh-huh. Isn't that just a crazy? Yeah. Joseph's a little bit of a, he's a little bit of a kid brother in these moments. Yeah. And, I, and I get, uh, I, I don't condone what the brothers do with that information, yeah, sure. but I at least understand them being a little peeved at Joseph. Yes. Um, his brothers conspire to kill him, but instead sell him to slavery in Egypt through a somewhat complicated series of events where he ends up in a pit and then they were going to kill him and then they didn't. And then there's a few different caravans of merchants that come through. Caravans of merchants. It's a whole convoluted thing. All that to say, they don't actually kill him. He ends up down in Egypt and they fake his death by bringing this robe that he was given, covering it in blood and bring it to uh, their father, Jacob, who mourns the death of his son, at least supposed death of his son. Uh, And this chapter concludes with Joseph ending up as a servant in uh, an officer named Potiphar's house down in Egypt. Uh, And then Genesis 38, we kind of take a little bit of a detour. Um, Seemingly randomly. Well, yeah. Speaking of stories that don't get told in Sunday school too. Yeah. Because when you hear the story of Joseph, we skip this whole section. Oh, we we totally skip this entire chapter. Um, We leave Joseph in Egypt and we get a brief tragic story of Judah and Tamar. Judah is one of Joseph's older brothers. Um, and he leaves everyone else and goes and finds a Canaanite woman and gets her pregnant. It doesn't actually say they get married. He just kind of gets her pregnant. And then later they get married. Um, and has, from what I could tell, three sons. Uh, and it's it's significant that she's a Canaanite. We've kind of established that. Like this is a thing we don't want happening, at least in this storyline. Um the, the sons of Abraham are not supposed to be, you know, the lineage of Abraham is not supposed to be uh, fraternizing with the Canaanite women. Right. Um, and I I read recently, uh, I, I don't remember the entirety of the story. I wish I could go find the book and have read it before I got here. Uh, but Dr. Michael Heiser in his, un, I can't remember if it was an Unseen Realm or one of his other books that I read talks about a connection between the Canaanites and um, the sons of God sleeping with daughters of men in Genesis 6 and that whole ordeal. Um, And his argument based on a a few pieces of evidence in the text of scripture and elsewhere is that the Canaanites are the descendants of this really strange. Um, I, I don't know if you guys went over Genesis six. Yeah. We talked about it a little bit. Is, Gen- is Genesis six post flood or is it pre flood? Genesis six is just, Oh no. Cause it's the sons of, right. Sorry. We yeah, talked, yeah. I talked about how one of the possible interpretations the sons of uh, Seth yeah, is, yeah, is the sons of Seth or is it the actual, um, essentially fallen angels and that whole thing. So not to, not to yeah, rehash it's pre. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not to rehash all of that, but yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought for sure. Yes. So the, that, that happens right at the beginning of Genesis six and then Noah and the flood start in verse nine. So gotcha. first few verses. Um, and yeah, his argument is that, so I know the floods already happened. His argument is still that somehow this has led this inbreeding between 
his argument is that it's inbreeding between divine human or divine beings. And he interprets sons of God as divine beings right. and then daughters of men making that distinction. And then, yeah, essentially his argument is that the reason we don't breed with Canaanites in the old Testament is they are descendants of this, this, um, strange breeding that's happening. Um, but Judah gets a wife for his firstborn. Her name is Tamar. Tamar's husband then dies. So Judah tells one of his other sons to bear her children. Like we just talked about, that was a very normal right. practice. The idea was that if you were the brother, you would have a, a child or preferably a son. And then that, but that son would have the inheritance and carry on the name of your brother. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the idea there. And so, uh, as Hunter's about to talk about one of the sons of Judah, that was his job. And he, uh, he mm -hmm. wasn't too keen on it, unfortunately. No. Um, how do I say this being PG? He, yeah, people, people know what happened. People, yeah, people, yeah, yeah. people, people, <laughs> <agreed. laughs> they'll, they'll get the idea. He refuses. Let's just say he refuses to do this and God doesn't like that. So he dies. <laughs> Uh, and then Judah sends Tamar back to her father uh, and asks her to remain a widow. Uh, but then much later, Tamar dresses up in a way that looks like a prostitute. It doesn't say she dresses like a prostitute, but she covers her face with a veil um, and runs into Judah by the entrance to a temple. As he's traveling, um, they do things. And then... Tamar later conceives a child from Judah and is going to be burned for her prostitution. Here's another example of what you were talking about earlier. Uh, Judah's like, what? She's pregnant and she was on the side of the road being a prostitute? This is terrible. Let's, let's burn her. And does, not realizing that, I don't, I don't know how these people are sleeping together and not realizing who they are. Like that's a- That's just a problem. That's happening yeah. a lot. What are you going to do? So, yeah, I don't know. Um, and then Judah realizes what he's done and that he's the one in the wrong. And then we jump back into the other story. That's, yep. It feels like a really random. Um, well, it's hard because, yeah, there's not like a, there's not necessarily a moral to it. It's just ba basically the story is, yeah, Judah was a terrible guy anyway. <laughs> well, I, I think the moral of the story is it's not explicit, but I think it has to do with it's emphasizing what is happening when people are going against the recommendation, strong recommendation to not be marrying into the Canaanites. True. Yeah. I think that's the, that's meant to be the emphasis. <laughs> like this is clearly not a blessed situation. None of it is. Nope. No, that's a good, that's a great point. Uh, well, I guess we'll leave that disturbing story in the, in the, in the past now. Uh, so we get back to Joseph and we find him like Hunter said, he's in the house of Potiphar, uh, and he's with the wife of Potiphar. Uh, although not in that way, not in that way, although she wishes it was in that way. She, so, she certainly does. Uh, and so basically Potiphar's wife keeps hitting on Joseph over and over again. And Joseph is like, rightfully, he's like, look, like you're like, your husband's been super cool to me. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, and even if he wasn't, I don't think Joseph would sin against God in that yeah. way. But I think it, it even, he even more emphasizes like, well, how can I sin against my master in this way when he's been, he's been super chill. I don't think Joseph said super chill, but you know, it's one of those things. The uh, Hebrew equivalent yeah, of super chill. There you go. Uh, well, eventually 
Potiphar's wife has enough and she straight up just accuses him of forcing of forcing himself on her. Uh, and so Potiphar is, I mean, rightfully enraged. He, he believes his wife in this moment. And so he has Joseph thrown into prison. Uh, and so while in prison, we don't know exactly how long this is, but eventually two more men are thrown in. I, I, more than Obviously, there's more than just Joseph and these two guys in the prison, but two servants of Pharaoh. Probably. Are thrown, probably, I guess that's true. Uh, and this is Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. And so, you know, Joseph, he meets them. Uh, they both have very odd dreams and they say that they're, it's too bad that there's no one around to interpret these. And then I love what Joseph's line, because he says like, well, don't all interpretations belong to God? And then I just love the confidence because like, yeah, just tell me yeah. and then God will probably, God will reveal that to me. It's fine. So the the faith of that moment is is really cool, I think. Um, fun personal story. Ooh. I've, <coughs> as far as the gifts of the spirit that I've experienced personally, um, I've only experienced the prophetic one time, like that as a gift that the Lord has allowed me to, mm-hmm. to use. Um, and that was when someone shared a dream they had. Oh, really? Like the Lord just was like, here's what that means. Go tell this person. And that was when it was a really scary moment because I'm like, I'm going to sound like a crazy person. Right. <laughs> but someone shared a dream that they'd had that was kind of disturbing to them. And the Lord was like, here's what that means. Oh, wow. That's it really was, cool. It was one of the coolest moments. I literally went home and I remember just going upstairs into the, the space that was kind of my prayer closet at the time and just like praising the Lord for like an hour straight that he'd like allow me to be used that way. Like, yeah. sorry, I just hope that's encouraging for someone to, to no, yeah, so it's always to be used that way. It's always hard when like you feel like you have a word from the Lord. It takes a lot of courage to actually share that. Oh, and so, sure. um, but I've been on the, um, I've been on the receiving end of that word. It wasn't a dream, but just someone came up to me who I, I kind of knew, but not like mm-hmm. super well. Uh, and then just kind of like, there's like, Hey, I feel like, I just feel like the Lord is asking me to tell you something. So maybe this is weird or maybe not, but it was actually like, it was a very important moment for me. And like, I was yeah. like, Hey, thank you for sharing that. Like that means a ton. So I've had that happen to me a few mm-hmm. times and they've always been like pivotal moments in my life. Yeah. So encouragement for you. If you feel like the Lord is leading you in that way, you know, don't, don't fight it. Just uh, yes. step out in faith, discern, but yep, move forward. For sure. Uh, okay. So he's in prison and eventually this happens after he tells them or after the cupbearer and the baker tell him the dreams. Uh, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph saying, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me and on the vine, there were branches and it was budding. Its blossoms came out and its clusters produced ripe, ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup. And I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand as your former practice when you were the cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well for you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of prison. So yeah, Joseph's like, hey, dude, good things are going to happen. Do me a favor. Like, you know, let Pharaoh know about me when when it gets to that point. Uh, we'll see if the cupbearer does that. Uh, but the chief baker tells him his dream as well. Uh, he has a very similar dream where there are three baskets of white bread. And eventually the top basket, there was, you know, all kinds of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating out the basket out of his head. Uh, and then Joseph answered, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up, lift up your head and will hang you on a wooden post and the birds will eat the flesh off of you. Uh, so that's kind of a bummer. You can kind of imagine the cupbearer, yeah. Yeah, like, or no, it's not the cupbearer. The baker hears the cupbearer's dream and say, oh, sweet. And then he moves forward. And then Joseph's like, ah. 
sorry, dude. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, so anyways, after that, three days go by. And that happens. The cupbearer is restored to his position and the baker is executed. Uh, and then the passage just ends with, uh, but he, uh, sorry, just as Joseph interpreted him, oh, I, did, I thought there was a line there. Oh, no, I'm an idiot. I thought there was a line about how the, the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but where are we? Spoiler alert. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 40, 40 at the very end, unless I forgot to put in the last verse like a dummy. But uh, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You were right. Oh, okay. You just didn't include it in your notes I just didn't here, put it think. in. What a dummy. All right. So we, we get the idea. Uh, Joseph or the cupbearer does not remember Joseph and Joseph gets to stay in prison for longer than he should have because of that. But we'll pick that story up next week, listeners. Uh, we're going to jump here into the New Testament, but before we do, we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review on whatever podcast app you're listening on, uh, particularly Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really helps the algorithm get those things out there more. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. So if you do, we'll read that on the air and give you a shout out just because, you know, we like giving our listeners a shout out. Uh, but with that being said, let's jump into the New Testament. All right, well, jumping back into Luke, we see Jesus do something that he was already pretty famous for doing, and this is healing someone on the Sabbath. This is kind of, I don't know, Jesus likes doing it. I get it. He's trying to prove a point, and so I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't blame him one bit, but every time he does this, it causes huge problems with, uh, with the Pharisees. Uh, so Jesus once again reminds everyone who would object to this that they would not hesitate to save one of their animals on the Sabbath. So why should Jesus hesitate to save a human being created in the image of God? Um, which I, I love that reminder. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no, like in the law itself, there's nothing forbidding someone from, no. granted, there's no idea of, of, of miraculous healing necessarily in the law in this sense. Um, but the, there's nothing in the law that would forbid this, but, uh, the tradition of the Pharisees goes well beyond Correct. the law. Um, and that that's why this becomes a problem. No, yeah, absolutely. The Pharisees have been adding things onto the law that weren't there in the first place. And Jesus is rightfully calling them out for that. Uh, and so after all that happens, Jesus tells a few parables. Uh, and this is the, the first parable is of the wedding feast. And so he reminds people to live humbly. Uh, and the idea he says is, you know, when you're at, when you're at a wedding feast, don't sit up towards the top because then you might get moved down. But if you sit at the bottom, then your friend will move you up. And so basically like live humbly and God yeah. and God will exalt you. If you live proudly, God's going to humble you real fast is kind of the idea that's, that's getting so out there. The next one is also of a feast, not a wedding feast. This one's just a great banquet. Uh, but no, wait, it might be a wedding feast again. I don't remember. I should have written that part down. Anyway, so invitations are sent out uh, to the wealthy friends of the master. However, they all have these small excuses for why they can't make it. And eventually the master gets really frustrated that none of his friends are coming to this feast. And so he decides to invite the poor and anyone else off of the streets who would be willing to, who would be willing to come. And essentially the idea is... <laughs> when you get the invitation uh, to join the Lord, take it. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't reject it. The gospel is that invitation. It's an invitation well, to come to the banquet. The parallel to his friends here, the Pharisees are the friends. Right. Those who are a part of the nation of God by birthright are like, nah, nah. Jesus shows up and throws a party, which is the gospel. Mm -hmm. They're like, nah, 
which is why he's going around preaching to the sinners and the uh, the tax collectors and all the... Uh... I mean, the new covenant sounds nice, but can I interest you in just a really <laughs> intense interpretation of the law instead? Like, that's kind of their deal. What are you going to do? Uh, after telling these stories, Jesus reminds his followers that the call of the gospel is to lay down our lives before God. And that as Christians, we must be willing to carry our own crosses. And so essentially this idea that... Um, the, the yoke is easy and the burden is light of the gospel, especially in the sense of salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not a life of service and it's not a life For submitted. Sure. It's, it's not a life submitted before God. And that's what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, Jesus reminds the, clou- the crowd to maintain their commitments to discipleship. And so the idea here is like salt losing its flavor. He says, once it loses its flavor, it's it's pointless. It's just rocks that you're putting on food now. Uh, and so in the same way, we need to make sure that we do not lose the flavor of following the Lord. And so that we're actually, we, we stay useful to other people is kind of the idea. Yeah. Um, and then Jesus continues <coughs> teaching in parables. He's teaching to sinners who are, and other people who are the kind of the outcasts of society, what we just talked about. Uh, And he hears the Pharisees gossiping about him. They're uh, really mad, just like in the parable he just shared. They're really mad that he's hanging out with all these people and not talking to them, really. Not with the cool kids. Yeah, he's not with the cool kids. Um, And to combat the attitudes of the Pharisees, he tells three more parables. Two of them are very famous and talked about all the time. One of them less so. (laughs) Poor poor coin. Poor coin. Uh, But we have the parable of the lost sheep, which uh, let me find that here. I'll just read that for you. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Uh, And the passage, the point of this passage isn't so much that God leaves us to pursue the lost. I remember growing up, I was always like, wait, so am I the, the normal sheep? No, the sheep are the, the people of Israel in this, this parable. They are the Pharisees, the ones who've already received, um, the, the not complete, but they've received the full revelation of God up to that point. He's leaving them to go after the lost. Um, and they should be rejoicing, right? As you do when you save the lost sheep. Uh, we have a parallel uh, parable to this one. Um, this the, the parable of the lost coin is just a reframing of this last parable uh, where a, a woman loses one coin. So she sweeps the whole house looking for the coin and then calls her friends together to have a party for the coin. Um, well, that, to, be, to be clear, not a party for the coin. A party well, in celebration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's celebration it's of not the a fact coin that she party. found the coin. Um, when I was reading this, it made me think of one day where my wife, um, this isn't her fault. It's actually my fault. Uh, I designed in some computer software, a ring for my wife when we got engaged. Uh, and when I sent it off to be built, I told the jewelers, I said, Hey, I'm not a jeweler. (laughs) 
I have no idea how much gold you need around the diamond itself to actually keep it in place. Um, so please make sure that this is structurally stable. And uh, the jeweler said, okay, we will make sure it's structurally stable. And I like, think I it'll, can see where this is going. It'll hold the diamond in place. And one day as we're in our apartment after we'd been married, uh, Kelsey looks down at her ring and the center diamond is missing. And she does just what the woman does in this parable. She rips up everything in the entire house. We both did. I didn't just leave her to do it, but we're tearing around the whole house. We finally find it under a chair and I take it and we get the ring fixed. Um, but that just reminds me of this parable. I have felt that feeling of, oh shoot, this very expensive thing is now lost. Um, and then it was quite the party when we found it. We didn't invite our friends over, but we Bummer. it was quite the sigh of relief. A diamond party sounds way cooler than a coin party, but you know. Yeah, it's, that's true, it's yeah. Um, then we have the parable of the prodigal son and the, the uniqueness of this one. We kind of have three parables that are telling the same story. Um, we have a, a character that more directly reflects the attitude of the Pharisees. And that's the son here who's not the one that leaves. It's the son that stays, stays faithful to his father. Um, and finally, the son that leaves comes back. And uh, the son who stayed faithful is really jealous of the son who gets a party for himself, who's, you know, come back and his father's very happy that he's returned, um, even though he'd squandered all this money and done all this terrible stuff. Uh, and Jesus just points out the nonsense of this attitude. Uh, towards this person who's come back. He's like, you have everything. This is, again, pointed at this idea of the people of God have, up to this point, who are the Jews, have the revelation of God. You, Everything that's mine is yours, is what the Father says. Jesus is saying this about the Pharisees. Everything that's mine is yours. You, you have the easiest route to salvation of anyone here, yet you're rejecting it in your um, in your haughtiness, in your pride, in all of this. You, it, it should be easier for you <laughs> than anyone else. Right. Um, so that's what this parable is getting at. It's, it, it is kind of just funny how, I mean, Jesus just speaks in parables all the time. So like, like the next chapter in chapter 16, it's kind of the couple, uh, I call them the weird ones. Uh, oh, for sure. This one I think is the weirdest parable of all. Um, there's a manager who's about to be fired. Uh, and so he starts just making sweetheart deals with people. And he's like, oh, hey, like you owe my master this. Why don't you only pay this? And I'll, I'll mark your account good. And the guy's like, oh, thanks, man. And so basically he cheats his master out of a bunch of money. And then when he's dismissed, now he has places to go. And Jesus is like, that was a good thing. Uh, and so it's, it's like, it's a really weird parable. What, what's uh, your interpretation of that parable? Like, what do you think it's supposed to be teaching us? Cause I struggled with that. I don't have, I don't, this is a very open handed, like I, I don't have anything definitive on what's happening. Um, I think what it's supposed to be teaching us is essentially the wisdom and how we deal with others. Um, hmm. And so it's, it's this idea of, um, Treating treating people well, and 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 the idea there being because it can it can come back around at some point, but like you said, it's not an obvious one. Yeah. It's it's not one that I would teach I very often, I suppose, because it's it doesn't have like a definitive meaning. Um, like the parable of the prodigal son has a very clear yeah. message that's being sure. given out in that moment, uh, whereas the the parable of the um, of the shrewd manager, I think, is what it's normally called. It's just kind of like I. 
I don't know. It's yeah. a really weird one. Um, and this is coming from like, I've looked into it a bunch and there's no, there's not even like a big scholarly consensus on like, this is what I was yeah. trying to say. Like every place you go is going to have a different thing. It's kind so of a little different. that's kind of what I ran into too, where I was like, I don't know maybe the point means. of it is. So when Jesus is telling parables, it's notoriously very difficult to understand. And a bunch of people are like, why, why, like, why are you even talking like this? Why yeah. not just straight up reveal it? Maybe the point of this one is to show us what that felt like back in the first century of <laughs> just to get us to relate. Yeah. With like them. Jesus yeah. is like, you know, I'm going to tell this really complicated one. That's not going to make sense. And I'm not going to interpret it just so they, just so people who eventually read the gospels can get the idea there. I don't know. Uh, so before jumping into the next parable, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for being lovers of money. And he reminds the crowd about the law just, uh, concerning divorce. So kind of a little weird uh, intermission in between the two. And the next parable, and this is kind of controversial on if it's a parable or if it's a story, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, is about the rich man and Lazarus. Um, the reason that there, there's a question as to whether or not it's a real story is this, if it is a parable, this is the only parable where Jesus gives someone a name. Uh, yeah. And so- so th- that's where I've heard it. I think it was John Bevere who I was hearing talking about how he, he interprets it as being a story that literally happened be- because of that. Uh-huh. Um, one, one note is Lazarus at the time, from what I understand, was one of the top two or three most common male names. Didn't make it out of that time period, unfortunately. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> all of the other ones did. You know, we all got friends named John and Mark and Matthew, and but not Lazarus, not, Lazarus. not Judas. That one kind For of sure. That, that one, one kind of stayed. That one died with Judas. <laughs> Poor guy. Poor I, guy. I, I always thought. Yeah, there's a one of the jokes I always have is that there was two disciples named Judas and. Uh, I always like to think that one day when we're in heaven, we'll meet one. He's like, oh yeah, I'm Judas. I was one of Jesus' disciples. And it's like, no, no, not, you know, not, not that, that one. one. I'm the, you know, Thaddeus is my name. I think that's the one, the one he actually goes by. Uh-huh. But anyway, uh, and so in the story though, uh, there's a rich man and there's a poor man and, uh, and the poor man's name is Lazarus and both of them die. And the rich man is looking, we're, we're told it's Abraham's bosom, which is kind of an interesting, uh-huh. uh, it's an interesting picture of the afterlife that we get here. Uh, and he looks across this chasm and he sees Abraham and he sees uh, Lazarus. And essentially it's this rich man um, begging. He First he, he begins to beg for things for himself, um, like water, but then he begins to beg uh, for someone to go tell his brothers, essentially like, hey, let them know that this is the danger of the of the way that they're living right now. Uh, and the answer is essentially, well, they have the law, they have the prophets, like yeah. they have everything they need. So it's it's kind of it kind of puts a bow on the parables that Hunter was just talking about, where uh-huh. it's this idea of you have like the prodigal son, the idea is um, you have the revelation of God and yet you're getting angry that it's being given to, and in this case, it's just kind of being given to yeah. the sinners, but they're still, yeah, they're they're still, still the Jews. Jews. Yeah. Right. Just wait until how angry the Pharisees are going to be after Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it starts to go, the, the gospel the starts to go like yeah. wildfire around to the Gentiles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really interesting story. Again, did it actually happen or is it a parable? I tend to lean on parable. Um, and I think I think Jesus is naming the poor man here to give him extra significance. Um, and the idea is that 
you would think the rich man would be the man who was significant, but in this case, it's the poor man um, who lived righteously is the one who has the significance. That's how I would say it. But it, you know, if you if you're going to say like this is a story that actually happened that Jesus is aware of, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not I'm not going to just say that's a, that's a stupid thing to say. Yeah. I'll be like, oh yeah, sure, that's a very valid way to interpret it. Who who knows? It doesn't really change what you get from the story. True. Um, but yeah, then we get to Luke 17, verses one through four are. Um, <coughs> about temptations to, to sin are surely to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Oh. Um, but then Jesus goes on to speak of forgiving others. Uh, verse four, if he sins against you seven times in a day, speaking of, you know, say your, your brother, someone, someone close to you. Um, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him, is what Jesus says. Um, one thing I notice on this read through of Luke um, is that the person doing the forgiving doesn't really get to judge the authenticity of the repentance of the other person. That's true. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't say, well, and maybe if they're lying to you, or maybe if they're just trying to you know, sneak past you and just get you to, to look past this event, um, then maybe don't forget that, forgive them, you know? Um, it's very much like if they sin against you seven times in one day, like that's a wild amount to have someone, you know, right. sin against you, but they come to you in repentance, you must forgive them. Um, and I think that the reason he says this is you and I do this every day, <laughs> every day with the Lord. Um, and we would be hypocrites not to extend that to our brothers and sisters in Christ and really everyone around us, um, because that amount of grace has been shown to us. Right. More, more grace. More grace. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the, uh, it's why in the Lord's prayer, it's forgive us our debts as we forgive those, those who sin against us or our debtors, depending on. Yeah. I mean, those who sin against us is the more powerful way to do it, but that's why, um, I, Every every day when I'm praying, um, I try to pray along the Lord's prayer. Um, I've been not, doing that recently too. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't do it word for word, but basically the basic idea. I'll do of, both. But yeah. yeah. Oh, that's true. Uh, do am I praising God for who He is and for what He's done? Am I asking for His will to be done? Um, am I and then am I asking for um, the things that I need? And then am I bringing my sin before the Lord? Um, and am I asking God to give me the strength to forgive others when yeah. they sin against me? And I, I love that in my prayer life, those two things are always connected um, because it's like, Lord, here's, here's where I'm at. And at the same time, if someone is sinning against me, God, I pray that my first instinct would be to forgive. I pray yeah. that my first instinct would be to show forgiveness because that's what God does for us. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a great point that you're bringing up there. Yeah, that's that's funny you mentioned that. I've actually been, um, I've made that a, a somewhat daily habit um, where I've actually just tried to say the Lord's Prayer a few times throughout the day, which sounds very Catholic of me. I don't mean for that, but... Um, that's it's a it's a part it's a kind of spiritual discipline we don't necessarily have in Protestantism that I do somewhat admire and I don't think when Jesus said to pray like this hey pray this exact prayer right um but I think pre-written prayers or saying scripture but offering it to the Lord as a prayer that same way it's kind of a pre-written prayer in that mm-hmm. that sense you could even do it through the Psalms um but it totally recenters you 
Well, and there's a power to there's a power to ritual. Oh yeah, where for sure. if you're saying the same thing over and over again, eventually it just kind of becomes ingrained into you. And if oh, you're actually yeah. if you're actually reflecting on it and meditating uh-huh. on it, and not just kind of saying the words and then moving on, because um, I've I've said. Um, something along those lines for, for years now, that, that part of my prayer life has been, um, it's been essentially, God, I thank you for showing me grace and love and mercy every day. And Uh I pray that you would always give me the strength to show that grace and love and mercy to others. And I've I've said that so consistently for so many years, it just kind of has become a, a thought that I have when, when, when stuff happens, it's kind of one of those things. So there, I think it's a balance, right? Because I think uh, all of our spiritual life should not be all ritual because I think there is something about, um, I don't even know how to describe it, I suppose, but kind of like that spontaneous relationship oh, yeah. with the Lord. Oh, it should be both. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, it was, it, it's wrong to completely cut out all forms of ritual because some of that is really powerful. Yeah. Ritual and habit are right. very powerful tools. Sorry, that was complete aside from what we were talking about, but just that's that's cool that in both of our prayer lives, that is a thing. Um, you'd hope so. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus uses it as an example of how to pray. True. So it does make sense. Um, then in, uh, sorry. So we, we get through those verses where he's telling you, if your brother comes back to you and repents, you must forgive him. Uh, and immediately after this, unfortunately, we have an example here of a heading in most translations that I think shouldn't be there because the next thing the apostles say to the Lord is increase our faith, right? We have the, the, this line about the mustard seed and the mulberry tree. Um, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith, like a grain of a mustard seed, you would say this to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. These aren't like two disconnected thoughts in the text. This is one. We go straight from the, if your brother say it, it comes to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles immediately say to the Lord, increase our faith. And that's in light of what he's saying, because what he's saying is really hard. He's, he's saying, if your, your brother sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And they say, please increase our faith. Like that's, that is so hard to do that. And I do think this is an example where there's kind of a page break in a lot of our translations that separates these ideas. Obviously, the increase our faith and the stuff that that Jesus says in reply stand on their own as true statements. But in context, it's meant to be one line of thought. Um, and I think we should ask for that. In light of this passage, we should be asking for the faith to continue to forgive those who sin against us. Like you and I just said in our prayer lives, we do that. Um, But I think that is the purpose of of this line. It's more meant as a, it's one thought. Um, It's it's one story. That page break is a bit um, unhelpful. Those can be unhelpful sometimes. Once in a while, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes they're really helpful because they, they kind of summarize the passage. And sometimes they break up passages that probably shouldn't be um, into seemingly separate thoughts. Um, where are we here? The coming of the kingdom? Yes. Okay, cool. All right. So um, I'm going to do my best 
to explain what this passage means. And if you are someone who would um, define yourself as maybe a dispensationalist or someone who believes in the pre-millennial reign of Christ uh, and a pre-tribulation rapture, um, my interpretation of this passage might make you a little angry. I apologize. I'm not going to argue against a pre-trib rapture. That is not the point. But I don't think this passage teaches a pre-trib rapture. And I think it's kind of important that it doesn't. And I think it's necessary to understand what it's actually talking about. <laughs> so I'm just going to read the passage. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about some of the themes in here some of the things it's referencing and why, because of those things, it can't be talking about a pre-trib rapture. What I say, what I mean when I say pre-trib rapture is um, in the end times, there's this idea of seven years of tribulation. Uh, and some people believe that uh, those who are faithful to Christ before the tribulation, where all of this terrible stuff is happening on the earth, uh, these people will be brought to God. They'll be lifted up into the air as I think it's first Thessalonians 15 or something like that. Um, that's probably wrong. I know it's first Thessalonians, but somewhere in there, somewhere in there, somewhere in there, um, the, this idea of being brought up into the air. Um, people believe that that is going to happen pre tribulation and they'll use this passage to teach that doctrine. Again, I'm not arguing about against a pre trib rapture. There are, other places in scripture that you can use as proof texts for that. That's not the point. Let's read the passage. <laughs> I don't want to make you angry, um, but let's read the passage. Let's talk about what it means. It was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife who, as we know, looked back and turned into a pillar of oh, salt. Man. Oh my gosh. We talked about that last week. We did. Um, great reference. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Um, so the, the main two things that Jesus is referencing here, these two Old Testament uh, events that happen, we have to think about who is being taken and who is being left. In both of these examples, in the days of Noah, the people that are taken are the people destroyed by the flood. <laughs> and in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, the emphasis is on those who are destroyed. So I, I think thematically here, when we're talking about those who are being taken, we're talking about those who are taken to final judgment. Um, and I think the proof of that is the last 
verse. After they say, or after Jesus says, I tell you in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where Lord? They're asking where these people are taken. And what's Jesus reply? He doesn't say, oh, they're taken up to heaven and they're preserved from the tribulation. He says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And the word that we use to, or sorry, the Greek word for hell that sometimes gets translated as the lake of fire and these other various things. This is Gehenna, which was a place outside of the city of Jerusalem where they would take corpses of animals. They would take their, their poop and their, all of that stuff and they would throw it here and the vultures would gather there. He's saying those who are being taken are taken to hell. They're taken to Gehenna. They're taken to the place where the corpses are dumped and the vultures will gather there. I'm not arguing, again, against a, a pre-trib rapture. Um, I'm just saying this, this isn't a passage that's talking about that. This is talking about final judgment. And I wrote here just kind of my brief summary of what this passage actually, actually means, and I hope this is helpful for you. Um, again, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I am. I think based on just the evidence in Jesus's response, if this is about a pre-trib rapture, it's being read back into the text rather than exegeted from it. Um, the way I would summarize this is people who claim to be Jesus, sorry, people will claim to be Jesus. Don't believe them. That's kind of the first part of this passage. That's always a good rule of thumb. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus's return will be visible, loud, and obvious. That is the second part. Life will be like normal up to when Jesus returns. Like it says, it was in, in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They're eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Life was normal. Jesus' return will bring judgment, just as God's judgment was poured out in the days of Lot and Noah. Those are the examples that were given. Those who will be judged can't escape it. Uh, and if you want to save your life from that judgment, you must lose it. That's what he says. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it, picking up your cross and following Jesus in faith. So I hope that's a, a somewhat helpful summary of the, the passage, and I hope I didn't make anyone too mad. If you have other questions about the passage, I'd love to answer those if you have them. See, there you go. It's always it's always fun. It's always good to have a uh, uh, a little bit of a deeper dive into the interpretation of some of these passages that we kind of like. We can get a little bit. We can take open handed things, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, yeah. and we can almost try and make them closed handed. So it's good. It's definitely good to have perspectives on that. Uh, moving into chapter 17, or sorry, chapter 18, uh, we get back to parables. So we get the parable of the persistent widow who receives justice even from an unrighteous judge. Uh, and this is the one where she continuously goes to the home of a judge and keeps crying out for justice. And he doesn't want to do it, but eventually he's like, okay, fine, like if you're going to pester me about it. Uh, and the idea there is that if an unrighteous judge is going to give justice because of this persistence in, yeah. in asking, um, how much more will the ultimate righteous judge of all the earth give us justice yeah. when we ask? So cool things there. Uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying is the next one that we get. And this is a really famous story uh, where you have a tax collector who is praying and basically saying, um, 
I'm a sinner and I'm not worthy. Father, please forgive me. And the Pharisee is praying. I'm like, oh, thank goodness I'm not that guy. Am I right, Lord? <laughs> Elbow, nudge, nudge. Uh, and so Jesus is like, yeah, the tax collector's prayer is the one that is is being heard, not the Pharisee's self-righteous. Like, aren't I awesome? So good deal there. Uh, and then we get away from parables. We get into actual stories for a little bit. Uh, Jesus... <laughs> invites uh, the children to come uh, to him just like the adults. And so back then, I mean, back today too, like there's a kind of children are often uh, dismissed, even when we care about them, like the idea of them is kind of just like, oh yeah, that's cute. Now go off and go off and play little, little one. Uh, but Jesus clearly cares. Jesus clearly loves the children just as much as he loves the adults because they're all humans. They're all created in the image of God. Uh, and then we get the story of the rich young ruler who, uh, I hope is Barnabas. Someone told me that a while ago and I was like, there's not evidence for it, but it's like, you know what? That's a nice thing to root for. I hope he came yeah. to his senses and he became one of the missionaries. But I wonder if that was like a, a, a Catholic tradition. I don't know. That yeah. sounds like a Catholic tradition. It could be. Either way, I hope it's true. I hope we meet this guy in heaven. He's like, yeah, I realized the error of my ways and I, I turned to Christ. <coughs> Sorry, listeners. Um, but anyways, in, in this story, uh, there's a rich young ruler, and he's talking about the fact that he's kept the he's kept the law uh, his entire life, and he's like, "What mo- what more must I do?" And Jesus is saying, "Go sell all of you have and give it to the poor." And the idea there is that this man was attached to his wealth, um, and that this was the this was the thing that he was refusing to lay down before the Lord, and he couldn't do it, and he walked away really sad. And so Jesus makes the point there that and because wealth is the example that's being used, but I want to be careful because I think for a lot of us it's wealth, but it's not wealth for everyone. Yeah. Um, I think for all of us, it's it's an important point to take stock of our lives and think where where in my life, what is that thing that God would be asking me to lay down before him that I keep fighting him on? And so uh, I think I, I think it's a really good thing to think about. Uh, and then fi- finally, uh, this is one of my favorites. It's Jesus just straight up telling people he's going to die and rise again. Uh, the reason it's one of my favorites is because I, I used to, as a kid, I, I used to give the disciples a lot of guff because I was like, Jesus is straight up telling you he's going to die and rise again. Uh, but then was, Jesus talks in parables so often. I don't blame them for one bit when Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to die. And then in three days, I'll rise again. And the disciples are like, man, what does he mean by that? Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just one of those things. Uh, but Jesus is starting to reveal the truth about what's going to happen. And then finally, we get this really touching story. Um, it says, now, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a man who was blind was sitting by the road begging. And when he heard a crowd going by, he began inquiring what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out and said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Um, Side note, there's a song called Son of David by Ghost Ship, which is really good. And it's just a retelling of retelling of this. So if you you want to cry and think about this, that's a really good song. Uh, But moving forward in verse 39, it says, those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept on crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, regain your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. I love it. It's it's a great picture of it's reminding us that Jesus is a son of David. He's uh we we've talked about this before, but Jesus fulfills the offices of 
prophet, priest, and king. He's mm-hmm. the greatest prophet. He's the greatest priest. He's the greatest king. Uh, and so this is a reminder that Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the greatest king in in, in this moment. And this guy is crying out and he has the faith to uh, get basically told to shut up and he's not going to do it because he knows that Jesus can do what he's going to ask him to do. I, I love the faith of the man. And I also love what it says about the, the nature and character of Jesus. Yeah. Then we get to Luke 19. Um, or Jesus meets Zacchaeus. Um, he's walking and he sees Zacchaeus, who is a chief tax collector, not just a normal tax collector. He's like the head honcho of the tax collectors. The taxiest of all the tax collectors. <laughs> and uh, he is he is the head of the IRS. Just kidding. Um, but these guys would do this thing called tax farming. Essentially, they would charge people a much higher tax than they actually owed. And then shave off the top for their own benefit. They were hated by Jews. They were hated by all the other Roman people. Yeah, it's, were... it's like one of those things where you would skim off the top, but then you would get three of your friends to skim off the top and they would get three of their friends to skim off the top. I'm just kidding. It's like people who are in MLM. A little <laughs> little, pyra- little pyramid scheme joke yeah, there. Yeah. Just kidding. No, no, it's more like... Um, it's more like scams. It's, it's, it's more like that guy who calls you from Lagos, Nigeria. And <laughs> like, I am a prince and I need you to deposit this amount of money. That's not real. <laughs> we we sometimes as, as a staff here at the Grove, we get t- uh, emails from uh, Bishop Nick Baumgart. Well, my favorite one is there's one of the scams is always just like, um, it's like, Evan, hello. I hope you're doing well. This is Pastor Nicholas. And then it's just like, I need your help with a sensitive issue or something like that. Yeah. It's just like, oh, this is a to- this is totally the way a real person Yeah, talks. this is totally the way Nick emails me. Oh, man. <laughs> but uh, sorry. Uh, Zacchaeus seeks Jesus. He climbs a tree, kind of like a kid, to see Jesus. It also says he's short in stature, so he's he's got to climb up to see him. Jesus doesn't just preach to Zacchaeus there, but he invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house. Um, And while they're there eating dinner, Zacchaeus repents. Jesus says that the son of man has come to seek and to save, which was lost, which is my favorite line in this chapter. Um, Then Jesus goes on to clarify some things concerning the kingdom of God. The disciples thought that Jesus would reveal himself as the Messiah in uh, a very immediate and political way. They thought, very much thought he was um, going to free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Um, oh, how wrong they were. And he, he kind of predicts what actually happens here in just a, just a moment. Um, but because of this, Jesus gives the parable of the stewards. Um, and in this parable, the master gives his servants an equal amount of money and then leaves to go do business somewhere else and tells them to do business with the money while he's gone. The money symbolizes the gospel message and all of the gifts that Jesus has given us in the spirit and in life and of faith. And the master here is uh, is Jesus, who after his death ascends to heaven and will return one day, just like the master says he's going to return. Then the master returns and some servants have invested their money uh, and to these these people, the master says, well done, good servant, which sounds very much like what is said 
will be said to us, those who are faithful to Christ, uh, on the day of judgment, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's not a mistake. That's meant to be a parallel there. Um, The faithful servants are given cities to rule over in the master's kingdom. These are the treasures we build up for eternity. The third servant only brings the master what he was given. He was disobedient to the master. He didn't do anything with it. Um, It's as if we were to receive the gospel and do absolutely nothing about it. Uh, And this servant is judged and everything he has, including the money he was given, is taken away from him. And all who refuse to serve the master die. Jesus is trying to bring light that his kingdom is at hand, but also hasn't come yet. Um, he's saying, I'm giving you gifts just like he's giving the servants, the master's giving the servants gifts in the parable. You're meant to invest them until I return. So they thought he was an, an immediate political savior. And he's saying, I'm giving you the gift of the gospel, faith, and life. And I need you to invest these gifts until I come back. It's a, it's a good, it's a good reminder for us for sure. And I, I what was I? I was reading a different translation that doesn't use the word talent because I think uh-huh. like it, it carries. I think mine says meanest. That's what mine says. Yeah. Okay. That's what mine says too. Are you reading ESV? NASB. Oh, okay. I am normally. They're like the same thing. I am normally an ESV boy, but this year, you know, I just decided to go. I just had to go a little bit crazy uh-huh. with my, with my Bible translations. But I, I was thinking about how, cause talent just has English baggage that comes. Oh with yeah, it. for sure. Um, and so having it be another word. That's why I said, I just said money. When yeah. I was explaining. It, yeah. it, it helps it out a ton for sure. Yeah. Um, after Jesus tells this parable, he rides into Jerusalem, not on a horse again, like a military general would, but on a humble cult. Jesus, as he's making his way into the city to the sound of praise and honor, prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He says this, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's predicting the uh, destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, Depending on what scholar you talk to, the the dating of the writing of Luke is all over the place. Uh, But from those who uh, emphasize internal clues in Luke rather than maybe some external clues. Um, Just as far as manuscript evidence and all that stuff goes, gets really nerdy really fast. Essentially, we could say it's written about 60 AD, which is 10 years before the destruction of the temple. Um, This very clearly predicts the destruction of the temple. And in fact, for that reason, a lot of uh, secular critical scholars who do not believe that these are the word of God will say all of the gospels must have been written after 70 AD because they also clearly prophesy the destruction of the temple, which is bad reasoning. Well, I think <laughs> same like, thing happens with Daniel. For Yeah. If Daniel is the one where people are like, because if, if, if Daniel can be proven to be written uh, when 
we think it's written. Yeah. It is just the most it's clear. So accurately yeah. predicts the birth of Christ that it, it's insane. Right. And so, and the earliest, and all of that other stuff. Yeah. And the earliest copies we have of Daniel are still significantly before Christ. Yes. Um, so I, I, I would love to one day find a manuscript that we can actually oh, date yeah. to being like, which at, I mean, at the time. even some secular scholars will say like, oh, well, it must've been edited after the fact or. True. Because the, the Hebrew text we do have is um, generally from just post Christ, but the, the Greek copies of those texts, the Septuagint is a little bit older. Right. So the Masoretic texts, the Hebrew ones are slightly after. That's a good point. I was going to say with Acts, the big internal clue is that it does not record the death of Paul, which we know takes place during yeah. the reign of Nero in the late 60s. Uh -huh. like which Luke and Acts, I'm sure you've gone over this, were yep. originally one document. Um, and so it's in order to say that the gospel of Luke does not predict the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, you have to say that Luke is writing about the story of Paul and he knows that Paul is executed in Rome and that's the end of the story. And he's just like, ah, I'm not going to write Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm just going to forget about it. And like, and Luke has no problem recording the death of other apostles yeah. in the book of Acts. He, 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 This isn't a thing where it's like, it's disrespectful. Like, no, it's yeah. a very um, respectful thing to describe the the people um, in Acts that he's writing about and how they died. Uh, if you read Acts, it just cuts off. Like he, yeah. Paul, Paul gets to Rome and some people visit him and that's the end. Um, and so I think the, the strongest evidence for the date of Acts is that it was finished at that point, because why else would Luke cut it off yeah. there? Um, well, so and there's a bunch of there's a bunch of other evidence within Luke itself. Right. Just descriptions of certain things, like uh, uh, there's a, a a gate that doesn't exist after 70 AD that it talks about. I don't oh, remember yeah. exactly where it is. There, there's a few things like that. The descriptions of Jerusalem in Luke are all a description of Jerusalem before. The destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem right. by the Roman Empire. If you if you if you are just determined that there it's impossible that this could predict it, there's yeah. no way. You basically have to say that the manuscripts of Luke were of Acts or sorry of Luke were edited long after. Yes, is, is and, and that's get away. that's become a common right way to to deal with it because the, it's so explicit here. It's true. Yeah, Jesus then cleanses the temple after he predicts its destruction. He drives out all the money, 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 changers, money changers, uh, with a whip. And he begins teaching there and the Pharisees are real mad. Jesus don't mess around them. I love they it. Don't. Uh, well, the final chapter for Luke starts off with, uh, this really interesting exchange. So this is in Luke chapter 20. And it says, on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes and the elders confronted him. And they declared, saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things or by who uh, or who is the one who gave you this authority. But Jesus replied, I will ask you ask this question. If you tell me what baptism of John, uh, what was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves, mm. saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us since they are not, since they are all convinced that John was a prophet. Mm. And so they uh, answered, saying they did not know where it came from. And Jesus answered them, neither am I telling you by what authority I do these things. Uh, and so essentially what this is getting at is I, I love Jesus' mind traps that he lays yeah. for the Pharisees because it's just so clear that he's so much smarter <laughs> than, oh, than they are. You'd hope so, um, being that, the God of the universe. That's true. Um <laughs> But it also gets at this idea of the Pharisees rejecting 
<clears throat> rejecting the evidence before them because Jesus does not live up to who they thought he was going to be. Um, Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that they thought he was going to be. And the reason I say it shows them rejecting the evidence is because the the fact that John's baptism comes from heaven is a fact that is evident to mm-hmm. everyone who's watching this go go down, except for the Pharisees. And yeah. so, because that's the reason that they're saying the people will rise up because they all think that he's a prophet. It's because it's so <laughs> so obvious that John yeah. is a prophet that that, yeah. that that that's what's going on. And so Jesus is kind of laying out the logic of why he is the Messiah, why he is who he says he is. And the Pharisees just can't, they can't roll with that yet. Mm -hmm. So it's a good deal or not a good deal, but it's an interesting story. Uh, Moving forward, we get the parable of the vine growers. This is where a master keeps trying to get the share of the produce that he was owed. And so he keeps sending servants and the workers keep beating up the servants and sending them back. Uh, Eventually the master sends his own son because he's like, okay, well, the the workers will respect my son if they, even if they don't respect my servants, Uh, but the workers kill the son and they try and take the inheritance. Jesus, the parable's not finished. Jesus just asks, what would the master do in that situation? Uh, And the the answer is pretty obvious. He's going to go and he's going to kill everyone basically is the idea. Uh, And so, man, far be it from us to uh, receive the son of our master uh, and kill him. Oh, wait, that's what happens. But I also love that uh, what Jesus is describing here is what we deserve. And and yet, if you actually wanted to like kind of finish the parable, I suppose, and this, this could be blasphemous, I guess. So I'm not actually trying to say I'm finishing the parable for Jesus, yes. but um, you could finish the story by saying the master went and forgave the workers for what they did. Mm. Um, granted, in order to really make it match, you'd have to have the son come back to life and then the son go and forgive yeah. and all those sort of things. But essentially the idea is that's what we did. We're the workers. We killed the son of God. Um, and I, I think I, I do want to say that important thing as well, because I think there's like, there's people who are just like, well, I didn't like, no, you did like your, your sin is what put Christ on the cross. It wasn't uh, the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. The people who were there happened to be Jewish and Roman, uh-huh. which is a, th- which is a thing, but it's not, this is not a, we don't get to absolve ourselves of the guilt of this. It's our sin that put Christ on the cross. Um, and so really interesting parable there. Uh, This leads into a discussion of if it is right to pay taxes to Caesar. And at this point, Jesus says that we should give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and that we should give to God what belongs to God. So in other words, and this gets explored in the epistles a lot as well. But the idea is that as Christians, we are called to uh, submit to our governing authorities. Um, Not in everything, obviously, if, if if, uh, if a governing authority is telling you, you need to go sin now. We have the yeah. right to say, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but at the same time, we are to respect those who are in authority over us. And then the idea here is give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Or in other words, pay your taxes. So, yeah. And as someone with some libertarian leanings once in a while, it's like, I don't want to pay my taxes, but I guess it's Jesus fine. says so. I mean, it. in fairness, even the most gung-ho uh, supporters of taxes don't enjoy paying taxes. That's not a thing that people like to do. If you do... Good for you, I suppose. <laughs> way to way to yeah. go. I guess maybe if you're wealthy enough, it's just like ah, it doesn't even matter to me anymore. Uh, and so I also like the Sadducees hear this and they they start asking the important questions. Uh, so a group of Sadducees come to Jesus and remember the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're kind of trying to trap him in here. Mm-hmm. But they say, hey Jesus, if there is a man who is married to a bunch of different wives, or sorry, if there's a woman who is married to a bunch of different husbands, like her husband keeps dying and she keeps yeah. marrying another one. Who's, whose husband is hers when she gets to heaven? Or whose wife is she when she gets into heaven? And Jesus just kind of, you can just get the picture that he just kind of looks at him. He's like, guys, that's not, it's like the, 
That's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. And so Jesus basically talks about how uh, relationships will be different in heaven. Uh, and I love, I, I recommend this book at least once a year. Um, heaven by Randy Alcorn is one of my favorite just kind of books on the subject of heaven. Um, and one of the things I really appreciate is he's very clear when he's saying, I believe this is what scripture is saying and here's what I'm building out of it. And then he's also very clear when he's saying, this is kind of what I think based off of the, mm-hmm. my interpretation of scripture. So it's very... um. <coughs> When he gets to the very open-handed ideas, it's very clear that that's what's happening. Yeah. Uh, but one of the points I like that, that he makes, because sometimes this gets interpreted as like, yeah, you'll get to heaven and you're not even going to know your wife anymore. And he's like, no, that's not the point. The point isn't that we get to heaven and we have no memory of any of our earthly relationships. We don't know anyone. The point is that it's it's a relationship that's above the marital relationship now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the relationship we get to enjoy is other people. It's not saying that like, well... Like I'm, I'm, Ashley and I are going to get to heaven and it's like, all right, well, that was a fun ride. See you. See you never again. And the idea here though, is that, um, that relationship is in a different way that our yeah. relationship is no longer as husband and wife, but it's, it's something new. It's a, it's, I, I would say it's a, it's a deeper friendship, even if it's not necessarily involving, um, you know, the, the intimate parts of relationships as well. So it's, it's a really interesting thing to think about. And Jesus purposely kind of leaves it vague. He just told, tells us that we're not going to be given uh, in marriage at that point. Uh, and then finally, the chapter ends with these short statements. Uh, Jesus says, how is it that they say that uh, the Christ is David's son? For David himself uh, says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And so how is he his son? So basically Jesus is taking some of the messianic prophecies and he's showing how they uh, apply to him. And then also, uh, while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and long personal greetings in the marketplace and love personal greetings in the marketplace, the chief seats of the synagogues and the high places of honor at banquets, uh, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. They will receive, these will receive all the more condemnation. Uh, or in other words, and this is a point that's driven home all throughout the Bible, all throughout the prophets. Uh, what God desires is not just going through the motions. What God desires is the heart behind that. And so Jesus is reminding us, it's not just about looking good and making yourself look good, or it shouldn't be about at all uh, making yourself look good. It should be about the inner life that we have, the inner relationship that we have with Jesus and how that convinces us to live or how we live in light of that. Uh, well, that wraps up for the New Testament this week. We have one more uh, segment on the Psalms that we went through, and then we'll talk about what we learned today. And then we'll also talk about a question that came in today. So stick with us. Hunter is going to take us through some of the Psalms. My first point here is what are the Psalms? I'm sure you've covered this a little bit, um, but there, there are a few different things. Sometimes we think of all of them as, as corporate worship. They weren't necessarily that. Um, they are corporate song. They are prayer. And sometimes they're songs from an individual directly to the Lord. Sometimes that that was even used for corporate prayer, but maybe that's not its its primary purpose or the reason for its inception. All of that to say, um, th- this is an example of one that is the a shigayon or however you say that of David is sometimes translated as meditation. This is a meditation of David to the Lord. It says here, this is a Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Um, 
Psalm 7, as I said, is an example of this. I love how this psalm actually connects well with an attribute of God that is highlighted in Jesus's words uh, in Luke. We have here in verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And then skipping to verse 11 through 14, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He is prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Again, I think this is a picture of that final judgment that we read about in Luke, uh, where were we, 17. Um, And it's just, it's comforting to know that our God is a righteous judge. He's the judge that has the most context of any judge that's ever existed. Um, And that, that, brings me peace knowing that he's a good judge. You can trust God to not get it wrong, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, And in the same way we can trust God to have mercy, which is the Uh two really, if I was standing before a judge, those are two qualities I would love to to know. He is the righteous judge. Uh, Psalm 8 is some of the most beautiful, in my opinion, some of the most beautiful words in scripture, starting in verse 3 here. I'm just going to read it. I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. I just love that the picture of, I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place. What is man among all of those things that you're mindful of him? And there's like, there's something about taking the time and allowing yourself to be struck by God's creation. Yeah. Um, the other day this happened to me, it's just like, it was right at sunset and it was really stormy out. And so I walked and I was leaving work and where we live up in Washington, basically when you leave work, it's nighttime essentially. So yeah. it's kind of the sucky oh, part of being in winter. Um, but it was, the sun was just about to set. So the light was the, it sh- basically it lit up this tree, but everything behind the tree was black because it was storm clouds rolling in. And I just remember like stopping and looking and be like, wow, God, that's beautiful. Like that's really, it's just like a really, it's just a really yeah. simple thing like that. But how often do we allow ourselves to be struck by the beauty and the nature of God, allow ourselves to feel small um, and reflect on the idea that God thinks of us. Um, I also, there's a there's an inverse of this verse that always strikes me in Job, hmm. um, where he essentially says, who, who is man that you are mindful of? He says almost yeah, the same thing. But in, in that sense, he's saying, leave me alone, please. Like, and, and it's, it's a really, it's a really sad thought where in that moment, Job is, um, he's weeping about the fact that God seems to be just punishing him and he doesn't know why uh-huh. he's like, why, why are you doing this? And it, 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 it's always more heartbreaking when you read that passage, when you have this one in mind and you see how David is just rejoicing in the relationship that God has with his people. Uh-huh. So, sorry, I didn't mean to hijack. No, you you're fine. This is a. I could talk about probably just this scripture for hours. I won't even get it into it because of time, but the the word used there for heavenly beings, Elohim, and like what that implies about our status. And then in the New Testament, it talks about us being greater than the heavenly beings, like in our glorified state. And 
I won't get into it. We don't have enough time, but um, my my uh, challenge for you as uh, I, I do think as we as we read this verse, or as we understand the universe more and more, the psalm becomes more beautiful. Um, an example of that, if you've ever seen pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope, which yeah, it's true. About I think about a year and a half ago, went up into space and has been taking some incredible pictures of galaxies that are millions and billions of light years away. Just insane. A galaxy pictures. far, far away, you might say. You might say that. But read this verse and go to webtelescope.org and look at some of those images and let it blow your mind a little bit. That is it for Psalm 8. I could talk about Psalm 8 for a long time, though. I love I love Psalm 8. Um, Psalm 9 is according to the Muth Laban, which could be death of some guy named Laban, or it could mean on the death of the son, which would imply it's about Absalom, um, who died trying to take the throne of David for himself by killing David. That's a whole, we'll get there. <laughs> but um, fun fact that I shared with Evan earlier today is that if you go read a Catholic or Orthodox Bible, you'll notice after Psalm 9, the numbering changes and their numbering is all different. And the reason for that is that in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the New Testament, which we have access to, which all of the, sorry, I said New Testament, but Old Testament, that all of the New Testament writers reference. So when they quote scripture, they're quoting the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate and uh, the Roman canon all differ in Psalm numbering because they see nine and 10 as one Psalm. And because of that, there's one less Psalm in, in, in all of their uh, um, versions of the Bible. It doesn't change much practically, but it gets confusing for the numbering. It's true. But now, there you go. Now you know if there's, uh, if you say Psalm 150, and if someone opens up the Catholic Bible, they'll be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, Psalm 150. It stops at 149. I don't, I don't know if it stops at 149. Maybe there's some others that they condense, but I That's know right. at least... It's the same up until the nine. True, true. Um, but we get the same theme here. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice. Again, this idea of the good judge. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who sing who seek you, sing you. Um, and then, um, yeah, that's where, that's kind of where we end for today. What, what, what more do you need to say? So take a moment as we read the Psalms this week to reflect on God, on the beauty of God's creation and the fact that he is the perfect judge. He's the best of the judges. Uh, well, let's talk about what we learned today. Uh, for me, it just comes down to the story of the rich young ruler uh, and thinking in terms of what is it that we are not laying down. Uh, and towards the end of the last season, me and Aaron were talking about, and I, I realized that um, wealth had been a little bit of like that for me, but in the inverse, like it's not like I'm super wealthy and I'm like, I don't want to give any of this up, but it's almost like the idea of like, I wish I just had more money. <laughs> and if I had some more money, it would fix problems. Yeah. Uh, and I think so, we all feel that. Yeah, to, to, to a certain extent. Um, but realizing like, you know, what are the things that we are not 
giving up to the Lord? What are the things that we are holding on to? Um, and you can see in the story of the rich young ruler how it was a stumbling block for him, and it was it was stopping him from being able to fully uh, move in to what God had for him. And so for us today, the the simple application would be: don't be the rich young ruler. Like, what what is it that God is asking us to lay down? And let's be willing to do that. Yeah, my takeaway is uh, when Jesus is is clarifying those things about the kingdom of the God and the parable of the stewards. Um, and th- this idea that Jesus leaving, this time between Jesus leaving and when he returns is a time for us to make investments with the, the quote money that he's given us. And in this case, that money is um, the gift of the gospel it's the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of the word of God, the New Testament. It's the gift of the new covenant. Uh, it's the gift of everything that has to do with our faith. It's not of us, but it is a gift of God. Um, and if we are people who truly integrate this belief that Jesus is the son of God, he's God incarnate, he came to save our sins, and to offer himself uh, as an as an offering for our sins, um, if we truly believe that that this man was raised from the dead, um, we'll be investing. We'll be investing uh, the the things that God has given us until He returns. Um, so I I hope that's an encouragement for you to be doing that in your daily life. Oh, it's a great thought. Uh, we're running a little bit long this week, but we've put off this question for like three weeks, so I can't, we can't do it anymore. We are going to answer the question that came in uh, right now. Okay, so the question says, in Acts 3, the story of the lame man healed, Jesus is referred to at least seven ways, uh, in, referred to at least seven ways in the uh, NKJV version. Uh, the words are capitalized, so this helps basically the, sorry, she's saying that her Bible explains uh, that Jesus Christ means anointed Savior and that it kind of capitalizes things to help it see when that's happening. So uh, curious as to the meanings for the other names, especially because this was a sermon to unsaved Jewish people in the temple. So essentially in this story, uh, Peter is talking to people in the in the temple, in the synagogue, and he refers to Jesus in quite a few different names. So we're kind of going to go through those different ones, talk about what each of them is kind of communicating. Uh, so uh, this is a really interesting question. Ha- we haven't gotten anything like this before. So it's kind of a fun one to be able to dive into a little bit. Uh, and I'll say some translations capitalize anytime God is being referred to. Um, and I find that helpful, actually. So it kind of just, it's kind of just a way to do it. So um, that's not necessarily in the original language, but it's just a way for us as readers to um, to be able to see when God is being referred to. Uh, so the first way that Jesus is referred to is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This would be a pretty standard way to refer to someone. Um, the other common way that you would say would be like Jesus, son of Joseph. But back then there weren't surnames or last names. So my name wouldn't be Evan Westerfield. It would be Evan of Marysville or it'd be Evan, son of Thomas is the way that you would refer to Might me. be Hunter, son of Troy, which is like a... There you go. I don't know. That's pretty cool. I mean, I like it. Or Hunt- probably start going by that. You could even say Hunter of Troy, which sounds like some type of a mythical creature yeah. or a mythical, mythical figure. So there you go. Yeah. Shout out, dad. Yep. So <laughs> shout out, Mr. Shaw. Uh, so anyways, but that's what's going on in that one. So that's just a pretty standard way of referring to someone. Uh, the next one, his servant, Jesus, this would, refall, this would recall back to a lot of messianic prophecies where God says, my servant will do blank. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're a first century Jew and you hear... 
his servant Jesus. That's where your mind would kind of jump to. Uh, the same goes with the Holy One and the Just One. Uh, these are also both messianic terms that the audience would have understood. So at this point, Peter is trying to show uh, the the people who is listening that this isn't just a teacher. Like this is this is the one. That this is, this is the guy that the prophets have been talking about. Uh, the Prince of Life. This would be a clear claim, at least the way I would interpret it, is a clear claim to divinity. Uh, it can be translated. It might be better translated as the Author of Life. Is kind of the mm-hmm. idea here. Um, and so you'll see that in the Gospel of John. What does John say? It's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and through all through Him, all things were created. I've skipped some verses in there, but uh, the idea there would be that as the author of life, this is a claim that Jesus is not just a, he's not just a prophet. He's not just the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. Uh, And then finally Christ, he says the Christ or Jesus Christ. Christ is a translation of the word Messiah is is what that means. So it's kind of the the Greek form of it as well. So that's the claim that's being made in that moment. Uh, And then finally, this one's kind of, this one I thought was really interesting. He says that prophet. Uh, And so this shows, we talked about this earlier in the podcast, how Jesus fulfills the office of, of prophet, priest, and king. So when it's Jesus, son of David, that's calling to the fact that Jesus is a priest. Um, or sorry, Jesus is the king. And then this one is showing how Jesus fulfills the the call of the prophet because the or the role of the prophet. Because what did the prophet do in the Old Testament? The 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 prophet would speak the word of God and he would call the people, he would call God's people to repentance. What does Jesus do? He speaks the word of God because he is God. So everything he speaks is the word of God. Um, but also he calls the people to repentance and, and, and to the new covenant. So that's kind of what each of those names mean. Hunter, I don't know if you had anything to to add on those ones. No, um, except maybe just, we, we hit on it a few times. Names are super important in scripture and oftentimes are descriptors of the person. And in fact, when oftentimes when the Lord redeems someone or calls them to something new, he changes their name. Right. Um, we had that happen today with Jacob slash Israel. It happens all over the place in scripture. Um, so these names have great symbolic power, right? Not like literal power, but just, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and because of that, the fact that Jesus has so many, because he is in one sense fully a man who we can comprehend and understand and in the the other sense the almighty god who is uh, not fully comprehensible on this side of eternity and maybe never you know mm-hmm. um we need a whole bunch of names for him to understand who he is and his significance no that's a great way of thinking of it as well yeah the idea that um one name does not do jesus justice no, which i think is a great yeah. which is a great way to say that uh, well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do this on our website. Uh, there is a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you have a great week. <laughs>